there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and Cogdog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm gonna link a list of resources for ways that you can support black, indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Okay, you guys, for the final installment of the tonic case study, I have Tonic's human here with me, Jen, and she's going to answer some questions and have a conversation with me about her work with Tonic. Jen, thank you so much and welcome to the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So Jen, um, we met, as I said in the first podcast, at our Plus 2.0 camp in Colorado. And so what, what after that made you decide to commit to private coaching? Cause it is a big commitment. Yeah. Um, so I had actually been working with a privately with a local trainer for a number of months with tonic. Uh, Cause he's, he's not in a position. He wasn't at the time in a position where we could do group classes. And I was, I was working with a really good trainer and we were, we were making progress, but we had hit a wall. Like there was just, we couldn't get past it. And I had already realized that some of the stuff I had done in your worked up class, like the, the routines were uh, very helpful for him. And, but we just, we, we was like, we were making these tiny, tiny improvements and we weren't making that much, um, that big of a difference. And I felt like there was just a puzzle piece that was missing. And so when I heard you were going to be kind of nearby, um, I thought, well, we'll go out there and we'll see. I didn't know private coaching with you would be an, an option, but, um, then I, it just, it felt right. And I thought, okay, this is going to, this is going to be the missing piece that we need. 
Did I, can you remind me, did I say to you when I met you, you need to send me an email? <laughs> like, did I, is that what happened? I don't even remember. Um, uh, we have a, a mutual friend, one of the owners of Tonics Littermates, who's also back and forth. I think you were talking to Teresa a little bit. Um, mm. and, and she had kind of prepped me that uh, you you maybe want to do private coaching with Sarah. And um, you did say, send me an email fairly quickly after we walked in kind of in that <laughs> I was like, oh God, I can't help you today, but I can help you overall. <laughs> um, so, so you were basically, you were already fully committed. It was just another step. I mean, you drove from Kansas into Colorado in December. Right. Uh, I mean, when we, no small thing. 25 inches of snow that weekend. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So you were really already committed. And then I asked you to do a whole bunch of things. What was the hardest thing for you to change that I asked you to do? Um, the, the hardest, it's funny think, thinking it's hard now because it's so natural now. But the, the most challenging thing that you asked was early on, you told me that I was going to have to walk him every single day and I was going to have to walk him until he trotted. And that sounded absolutely ridiculous and impossible. Um, you know, I have a full-time job. It's, it's, and I just, you know, it was February in Kansas. And I think I wrote you a post of like 17 excuses um, and then told you, okay, so the, I just have to lay these out here and now I'm going to go do it. Um, and so that took a little bit till we found our groove on how to, how to do that. And so it's so natural now to go do it, that it's funny that that was the thing that was the hardest. Um, but that was, that was kind of stressful when you told me that we were going to have to do that. <laughs> really stressful. And Jen, it's, that's a consistent answer when I ask that question, because I ask people to do that a lot of the time. And it's, it is, it does feel impossible, especially when you have a dog that you've actually never seen trot <laughs> when he was free to do something, when he was free to actually be running, he wouldn't choose mm -hmm. trotting. Yeah. Right. And just for everybody listening, <laughs> sorry, what'd you say, Jen? But I don't know that I ever saw him actually trot even on a leash. <laughs> yeah, because he was just kind of frantic and, oh my gosh, go, go, go. And it's a common experience for for my clients. And um, for everybody listening, you know, just realize that when I ask people to do this really big thing, because if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm out because that's not possible for me. Um, <laughs> I am open to conversation and discussion and we certainly did discuss it, but you were so committed that you were like, here's all the reasons I can't. And then you went and did it anyway. <laughs> and that was fantastic. So what was the most surprising? So that was the hardest. What was the most surprising thing I asked you to do? Um, honestly, it was when, I think when you told me to, to stop with any of the adrenaline activities, cause you know, he, I, I run a disc dog club and he's, he's a disc dog. And so that is a, a normal part, you know, do, doing some disc practice, or I did do, we did do chasing the ball and stuff. That was one of the exercise things that we would do. And, um, you, you said, don't let's take that out. Let's take any, any high adrenaline, um, things out. And I wasn't expecting that, but it really, um, I do think that was important. Uh, and as I add it back in, it's been kind of interesting to see the difference now that I, I feel like I know him a little bit better. I want you to talk about that a little bit more because that is a surprising suggestion. I get a lot of clients who understand that these dogs have high exercise needs. And so they're trying to meet those needs a lot of the time with high adrenaline, high adrenaline types of activities like 
throwing a chuck at ball or like throwing a disc um, or like doing more agility or, you know, something, something like that. And they are often surprised and actually afraid when I say stop doing that stuff because they're like, oh, my God, this dog is going to get so much worse if I'm not doing that thing. Um, so talk a little bit about you are able to add those things in now. What are you seeing? Are you seeing him backslide at all? Or are you seeing just that you understand what he needs and you're kind of able to strike a balance? Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm seeing anything backslide. I, I We aren't doing uh that much like i i don't sometimes i'll go out and we'll play just a little bit of disc but i i don't i can't even remember the last time i picked up the chuck it um and so um you know he's he's playing disc dog in our our disc dog league and doing phenomenal like he he goes out there he other dogs are there he does his job he comes back to me and he's been doing great so i haven't seen any backsliding with that one thing i have seen uh, so i'm taking megan's handling class in uh right now is um when i tried it when i started doing some agility and used a toy and so agility is new to him we haven't done much and he will take the toy and he's great with bringing it back to me and playing the tooth toy game and all those things he would take the toy and go sit off somewhere else and so it's like adding the toy back into training when it's new, it, it tires him out so much quicker um, than had it had it just been, um, you know, than doing food. I can do all sorts of reps with food, but, you know, he's like, I got two in me and that's it right now. Um, if, it's, if it's something he already knows and we add a toy in, he can add the toy in just fine. And so that's been something I, I don't know that I would have recognized that for what it was before we had worked together because um, he is such a toy drivey dog. I think I love that you just said that because I find that when I give handlers the ability to see what their dogs really are kind of saying and need, and when we give dogs also the power to say what they need, um, most of the agility dogs I work with show us that reps of agility for a toy are mentally taxing and they need they need more breaks than we are giving them. And if you never let him have possession of the toy. So what's interesting is he takes it away, which means that you let him have possession of it. And in mm -hmm. most agility training, culturally, we don't have, we don't give the dog possession of the toy. We tug it and then we confiscate it. And then we go to the next rep. And so you allowing him to have it and then show you if he's ready for the next rep is empowering you to see those things and it's it's fantastic i'm so glad that you are able to see that able to let him tell you that and able to recognize it is about the toy being involved it's not necessarily about agility itself mm -hmm. and i won't pretend i wasn't really frustrated when he kept running off with the toy and i was like why why, why are you doing this so like, the only time i ever saw you leave training is when i've run too long and this is you know and that's when i do a five minute session and you'd leave me uh, but this is a this is like 30 seconds and you're leaving how is it too long and that's when i, I realized oh i bet it's i bet it's the toy <laughs> yeah i think that um we we again we we feel like what they need is adrenaline because they tend to be attracted to adrenaline and they kind of look like they are adrenaline junkies but i almost liken it to you know if you've got a hyper little kid and you were like okay we gotta satisfy this kid let's let's go ride some rides at disneyland 
like, wow. Let's <laughs> compare maybe riding some rides at Disneyland versus, all right, the kid's going to go on a scavenger hunt in the woods with a couple other kids. And then maybe think about the difference that you might see. Like, I love Disneyland, but the number of small children I see crying and having a full-blown <laughs> meltdown at Disneyland <laughs> is a large number. <laughs> That's so clarifying for me with these dogs. I think that it's not that they don't love it. It's not that they don't want it. It is that we overwhelm them with it because we assume, you know, if a little is good, more is better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, Tonic would be that child at Disneyland. <laughs> oh, yes, he would. <laughs> um, and, you know, as adults, I think, like, I also had a meltdown as a child at Disneyland. I remember it pretty clearly, even though I was really, really little. And now as an adult, like, when I went back to Disneyland as an adult, because I went when I was, like, six or seven and then didn't go back until my 30s. And I didn't actually expect to enjoy it. And now that I have like autonomy and power over my own circumstances, I love Disneyland. <laughs> um, and I think that we can do that for our dogs. We can, we can say, okay, agility is Disneyland, but I'm going to give you autonomy and power over your own circumstances. And then we can actually enjoy it together. Yeah, absolutely. So we made a ton of changes. I think I know the answer to this. What do you think was the most important change that you made for Tonic's life? Oh, absolutely. The walks. Um, and that's, and, and we started out doing them as close to every day as possible, but, uh, have it now about every other day is pretty good. Um, he needs to get about four of four in during the week. Um, mm -hmm. and then we don't see any issues. Um, but that's been the big, big difference for, and for me too, actually. I mean, I, I, to get it to know it fits in, I'm going out at sunrise most days and that's actually really great for me too. <laughs> yeah. I have found that, um, it's vital for my mental health. I can't imagine a time without it now, now that I kind of under, I understood how important it was for the dogs and I made myself do it for them. Mm -hmm. just like you did and now I would intentionally get dogs that need it and enjoy it because I need it and enjoy it right. I think it is it is really really important um I thought that's what you were gonna say when I met him I didn't know for sure that that would be it but I had a hunch mm -hmm. because most of the time it is honestly and, and it makes sense like the difference in him um just even on the hikes like today I took him out with a, a friend's young dog and there was a little running and then there was all sorts of stopping and waiting for us and some trotting and sniffing and, and the slow cantering that I think is kind of like his calm trotting, but mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. a, just a few moments of the burst of, of speed um, and a, just a completely different dog out there. He is. You videoed your walks for me throughout our whole work together and the difference between the first time that you went out <laughs> and your videos like today is mm -hmm. extraordinary. And it's again, we go back, I go back to that analogy of dropping a person who is clinically starving in a Las Vegas buffet line. You're not, they're not going to act like a normal person. <laughs> Um, but if a, if you are fed, if you are a well-fed, non-starving individual, 
Um, I mean, I could get excited about a Las Vegas buffet line if it's a good one, if it's the Bellagio, but um, I'm, I'm still going to be capable of acting like a normal person because I ate yesterday, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that that's, that's so important. He was totally just, I mean, when we first gave him that freedom, he went wild. He was pretty mm-hmm. crazy, but he's right. not anymore. He looks so great. So you, you talked a little bit about this, but give us the rundown. How is Tonic doing now? What are you guys doing now? You said that you're dipping your toe into agility, which was always a long-term goal Mm -hmm. that you're going back to disc. So talk about what he can do now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I don't think in the podcast you talked about disc at all. I don't think we talk a lot about it. Um, but one of the issues I had when, cause when I would take him out to play disc before is sometimes he would grab the disc and just take off doing huge like laps around the property of the place we were playing. And you just had to wait till he wore himself out and then finally came back. And so, um, you know, if, if we're going to play in a place, uh, well, actually at the world championships, one of the, the worldwide league championships last year, he ran off and ran up to, a dog that he should not run up to. It was a dog that kind of went after him and some uh, friend scooped him up and got him out of there. So, you know, going somewhere was not going to be an option for him. Um, we very slowly built up. Um, you and I worked on back chaining the end of, of playing disc with teaching him how to do, how to leash up. And the, and we have a whole routine for the end and he's not conflicted at the end like we go out there he doesn't he doesn't punch me on the way out like he, and mm-hmm. you know as a disc dog person i'm kind of used to seeing dogs punch at the discs um yes and uh so he he hasn't even i mean there's a little pulling on the leash but not not the frantic pulling on the leash to get it's it's more just the you're not walking fast enough pull to get to the line um he stays with me on the field even if another dog um is kind of out there uh, not walking or playing. We haven't gotten to that point um, that I would, t- I would trust him with that, but he, you know, we can play the whole minute or minute and a half and he comes right back. We've got our routine. I pull him the leash. He leashes up, he puts his head through the leash. He gets a disc to tug and then he gets to walk the disc all the way back to the car. And then he, we have the station by the car and he doesn't have to get in the crate right away. He gets on the station and he can hold his disc and he can sit on the station until he's ready to give me the disc and hop up in the car. Um, and so that, that can go for as long as he needs. And um, I haven't seen any conflict of him wanting to get back to the field. Now, I don't let him watch the other dogs play disc and make sure that it, his view is blocked. I mean, he knows other dogs are playing disc out there, but he's not screaming in the crate or being crazy. He's just, he's he's got his his um, little routine and he gets to get out and play. Um, so we're also doing some agility training um, online uh, and, and practicing at home. And then he has been going along to barn hunt practices. Um, he doesn't really want to play barn hunt, which is fine, but it's a nice low key environment with other dogs and um, they're not doing particularly exciting things. And uh, we've done, uh, we've even been able to get to the point where he can do some healing while the other dogs are walking around. Um, and uh, just it's, and he's happy to see the other dogs. Sometimes there's dogs that bark at him and he just moves away and he's not getting the super amped up. Um, uh, you know, I can see, a li- I mean, he's not, not getting excited, but he's not turning and hitting at me. He's not getting stressed um, the, the same way. He's just processing the other dogs. Absolutely. Let's dive into that disc work that we did because 
I think people are going to go, what? Sarah, we wanted to hear that. So um, you, you went, you did a great summary just now. So I want to kind of go back through. We focused really hard on that leash behavior. Mm-hmm. And I talked about that a little bit in the, in the context of the decompression walks because he needed to be able to be leashed periodically through the walk. But for disc specifically, you have um, a really nice like Martingale slip lead that you taught him to target Mm -hmm. and then you taught him to put his own head through. And then we layered it into a disc context. And one of the big important things is that he had a lot of conflict about putting that leash on because it meant disc was over. And so we intentionally, you have that beautiful routine of he, he doesn't have to give you the disc. He just has to put his leash on. Right. So he'll put it back on and then you can give him a disc, which he can carry off the field. Right. And that, and we, the only time we tug with the disc is when that leash is on. And so he knows the leash goes on. I'm going to get to tug with that disc. Um, and so that's kind of, that's a nice thing too. Yeah. That's a really nice special reinforcer that um, isn't super helpful to you like on the disc field, but that can be utilized in that particular context. So that actually helps you on the field because he's not wearing a leash. So we've got some clean context cues about when we are allowed to tug on the disc and when we're not. Um, And I love that you let him just get on a station near the car because you also had that conflict about getting in the car because it also meant that the game was done, whatever the game was, ending the walk or ending the disc session could create conflict surrounding the car itself. Right. And that um, getting on, you know, he had figured out would get back to the car and that somebody else would be playing disc by that time. Um, And so he would get back to the car with me and then he'd dive like to look around the edge to try and stare at the other dog on the um, on the field. Now, I set the station up so he can't really see that. But, um, you know, at some point I might let him be able to see it from the station just because he understands on the station I can watch other dogs do things. Um, And so, yeah, it's been and he's really comfortable getting on the station because it doesn't end everything. He just he can sit there and hold the disc until he's done. (laughs) Yeah. And how does he tell you he's ready? He he drops the disc and he gives me eye contact and I'll give him some treats. And then um, usually by the time he's ready to eat, he's ready to get in the car. Yeah. And isn't that just a fantastic um, just communication that you guys have built together in Mm -hmm. the sense that you, again, this goes back to, this is like your agility scenario. You can read him. You can see you're giving him that empowerment and that um, autonomy over his own circumstances. And one of the things that I talk about a lot, it's with all dogs. It's the cross the board, you guys, but you know, the border collies are kind of my thing. And one of their things is that they're control freaks. (laughs) And it it might be that I relate to them on that level, Um, but So they experience, I believe they experience because as a recovering control freak myself, um, we, I, you feel anxiety when you start to get the sense that you don't have control over an outcome. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that's definitely true for these guys. And so if you give them, you know, it goes back to that Disneyland scenario. If you give them control over the outcomes, if you give them control to end something or start something, um, you just, 
you'd be amazed what happens because you guys, this dog now, he doesn't have any conflict with you, Jen. I, the not that I see, like, he's like, okay. And now we end. Now I put my leash on. Now I carry my disc back to my station. I'm allowed to sit on the station as long as I need to. And then I can get back in the car. And it's the same with your decompression walks. He, you can snap a leash on him mid walk. If you need to, you can get him to get in the car even if he maybe wants to walk more now, which didn't used to be possible. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, we can talk a little bit about the ending there. I had originally wanted him to be able to just walk up to the car and hop in. And what, what I was noticing was when I would snap the leash on and snap the leash off after we had been out there about 45 minutes. So his timing, he knows that any time now we can maybe be going back to the car. Um, he would start to act stressed like if I took the leash back off, like he thought we were done and then he would. So that was when I'd sometimes see him do the bite at my feet or something like that where, um, and so I have switched to, uh, we will do the Martingale leash up to walk to the car. And so there's a little bit more chance that if he comes in and we get leashed up, if he does run off again and he says he's not quite done, it's no big deal because we're not by the car, we're out somewhere and we can keep walking a little bit more. So I feel like we've got that conversation. It's kind of like the station before the car uh, mm -hmm. up. Um, but we don't, I don't, as soon as he's got that leash on and we do the walk back to the car, you can feel him be like, okay, fine, we're done. Um, and so that, that was kind of um, an important step that he didn't like not knowing if the car if the if the leash meant we were done or going to the car like that was um that, yeah. that seemed to cause a little stress for him it absolutely did because it's a clear contingency right it's leash on equals bad mm -hmm. things like on equals loss of the fun and you just you're you're shaping him to put his own leash on and seek that leash out that alone would not have solved this problem for you right because he still would have read the context and he still would have said nope like no your clicker and your treats do not matter because i want to run right and i think that um a lot of my clients get <laughs> my poor clients i ask them to do such hard things and <laughs> one of you know like like Hey, Jen, I know it's February in Kansas, but I'm going to need you to bundle up and get on out there. Um, and you guys, Kansas winter is no joke. It is no joke. And I grew up in Colorado, and I'm here saying that Kansas winter is really no joke. Um, and so, but, um, but one of the other really hard things that I ask my clients to do is to give their dogs a little more freedom and control over their own circumstances and everybody's terrified that the dog will just run with it and never come back and never do anything you ask them to do again. When in reality, you have to give them a little bit more freedom in order to then ask them to do what you need them to do. Like it has to be a back and forth. It can't be, I control everything. And it also can't be the dog controls everything. It has to be an exchange. Right, right. And early on, you actually gave me an alternative behavior for when he was avoiding me and it was getting close to the time to be done. You told me to get my, my phone out and, and play around on my phone or turn my breathe app on. Um, I never did do that, but I did get the phone out and I would sit down and um, he eventually will come into me. And even um, even today, I ended up doing that. He was, he was running a little bit more. Uh, he wasn't quite ready to be done. I sat down and waited and he came in and laid down next to me and said, okay, now I'm done. 
Yeah, and that's funny. It's full disclosure. Sarah uses the same behavioral principles on the humans <laughs> that she uses on the dogs. Um, you know, because I don't think it's fair for me to tell you, well, do nothing. You know, I, it's not fair for me to say to you, well, you're just going to have to wait for him. Like, it is fair for me to say, do specifically this. You can specifically do this. I believe really strongly in empowering my clients with those alternative behaviors, which that's kind of a, that's a reason that to understand, I guess, why sometimes asking dogs for alternative behaviors in situations where they don't know what to do is so helpful to them sometimes. Um, okay, Jen, if you're ready, I've just got a couple of Patreon questions that sure. I would like us to answer together. So the first one comes from Alyssa, who says, do you think that tonics issues are hereditary? Uh, go ahead. Yeah, Jen, you can give me your thoughts on that first. I was going to say, I mean, it, it certainly could be. They're both, both his parents are, are working line um, herding dogs. And so I would certainly expect that his needs are absolutely hereditary. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. We could probably do an entire conversation on just that. But um, I, you know, it's, I, I, I don't think that there was some sort of problem in the genetics that led to this. I think it was, uh, he had more needs than I was giving him early on. So. Yeah. I think that everything is always both genetics and environment. And what I will say is that yes, his high exercise needs likely hereditary, likely something that was put in there by his hundred years of ancestors that worked sheep all day long. Like if you imagine that, now you can understand why he needs to be out in an open space moving his body. But what I will give Tonic is that he also was very, very successful with everything that we did. Um, and I'm going to a dog that does not have solid behavioral genetics will not be as successful as tonic was. So I would say, yeah, like it's all partially genetics, the good and the bad. <laughs> um, and I think for me, when people ask that, what they're really asking is like, would you sign up to get this dog again? And absolutely. I, I, you know, some of the stuff that was hard is because he is so honest about, I don't want to, or I don't like that. And he's, he's loud about it, but at the same time, it makes it now that I know, and we've got a language to talk back and forth, it makes it wonderful. Cause then when he's not saying no, he's saying I'm all in. And so I would, I would absolutely get another tonic if I could have it, have another one. And I'll vouch for that. I think he's a really nice dog. I think the fact that we were able to get so much done with him speaks to what a nice dog he is. Um, he's certainly high needs, but now that you're meeting his needs, he's such a great training partner for you. He is. He's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. He's what you want. I mean, you got a border collie. You had another border collie. It wasn't a new breed for you, but you wanted to do dog sports. Mm -hmm. And here he is. And he's ready to do dog sports. He just also needs you to make sure that his exercise needs are met. And right. I think that a lot of the border collies that people acquire to do sports with are chronically under-exercised. And it contributes to a lot of the problems that we see. Because they, they aren't hyper. 
So when you look at like a sporting breed puppy, who are also like a, a Vigila puppy is a good example, also very high exercise needs, especially when they're young, you can tell because they never stop moving. They are literally bouncing off the walls. The border collies tend not to be like that. It tends to come out in these other ways that confuse people. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's always been a great dog around the house. If if I didn't have desire to go and do things with him, I mean, he's been, he's been a, I won't say an easy dog around the house. There were a lot of things we had to work on, but he, he's always had that off switch that you talk about where he's happy to sit down and nap. I mean, he's under the desk right now, uh, chewing on something and, and napping. Um, and he's, he's very easy to have in the house. He is. He's, he's just, um, he's a nice dog. I mean, I think that, yes, a lot of his issues, sure. His issues are, um, potentially have a genetic component because I think everything always does, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So the next questions from Tara, it's a little bit of a longer question. It's like, there's multiple questions in this kind of paragraph. So I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll dive into kind of each piece. So Tara asks, I love the starving slash Vegas buffet analogy when it comes to the need for decompression walks. Could you talk more about management to get through the starving period, especially for dogs that are not yet ready to be off leash in an open area? It sounds like this may have been the case for Tonic. Was he in a fenced area or on a long line? We find that it takes way longer to decompress a dog on a long line. Would it be better to walk in a fenced area even if it was smaller to get some of the just flat out need to run out of their system? And also how did Tonic's need to run impact the other dog or was he taken out alone until he was calmer? So the first question here is what management did you do to get through the starving period? Um, And Jen, correct me, but I really don't think we managed much. Like we pretty much, you had a good space that you could go to, to just kind of unclip. Right. Um, I, we, I only went to, because I, I tried, there were two, there are a couple other places where I could walk, but they, they had, they were the proximity to a road or something was too high that if he ran out, that it would stress me too much. So I drove 40 minutes every day to this um, other location where it's a really big acreage with big space and only a small part where the road is that has very, very little traffic on it. And so he was able to be, to just run until he was done um, uh, without, without me having to worry too much about the space. Um, I never had to worry about him running off. I mean, he always wanted to know where I, where I was, um, even if, I mean, he might be two hills over, but he was always looking for where I was, even when he was kind of crazy. Um, I do have a tracking collar on him. Um, I had that on him before we even started working together, but that's just a little extra. Makes me feel a little better that I do have that ability to, to see where he is. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think... You were very fortunate in the sense that you, when I said you needed to do this, you immediately figured out where you could do it. And most places, if you dig hard enough, you'll find something. People assume that there's nothing and it's usually a wrong assumption. Um, It's just that we, if this isn't part of your life, you may assume that. And the Obviously, the tracking collar I'm a huge fan of. That is a huge part of my life. Um, Tara mentioned that it that she finds that it takes way longer to decompress a dog on a long line. And man, do I agree. Honestly, some if the dog is just going to be at the end of the long line dragging you, 
neither of you are going to have a good time. That is not healthy for either of you. So that's, that's very true. You can long line walk tonic now, but you could yes. in the beginning. So talk about that a little bit. Exactly. And so, I mean, we use the long line two different ways. There was the one where it, it, he just dragged it out there. And so I was, when we did snap the line on him, I wasn't holding that when he was out running, but then mm-hmm. after we had progressed to that point, cause there were some days I couldn't get out there. Um, I have a 33 foot long line, um, kind of using bat type leash skills where I would hold it up and he wasn't dragging it and take him along a path where he wouldn't be safe to be off leash and kind of do snippy walks. And he used to race towards like, he'd kind of fling himself towards the end of the line. Um, and we had done some of like the, the different loose leash walking techniques. Um, and he would almost like slingshot himself around to get to the end of the line. And it was so annoying. Um, and I'm not really sure when he made the change, but there was just some point where all of a sudden he was quite content to walk on a long line. Um, when his exercise needs officially got met. Right. When he was no longer the starving person. Right. When he was the fat person. Yeah. And so now it actually doesn't take him that long. We can do a 30 minute long line walk and he's where he's just trotting and sniffing. He's got, you know, there's enough space that he can he can get out and, and, and move his body a little bit, but, um, he's not running and a 30 minute walk on a long line. And, and he's, that's pretty satisfying to him. So, um, not, that's only if I have to miss a day of getting out and hiking that I can add that in and it'd be a nice balance. Um, and so that's a nice extra tool that we have. Yeah, definitely. A lot of people have it a little bit backwards. They want to start with the long line because they don't trust the dog. And then they feel like when the dog's exercise needs are met, they can trust the dog and they can unclip. But you're usually not going to get there on the long line. Um, You're both going to be frustrated. You're, as far as me, like physically, there's no way that I could. I can't hold on to a long line if the dog is really pulling. Um, And it's it's not actually good for either of you. And that slingshot thing that you mentioned, I see a lot of dogs do that. They just throw themselves into it. And it's, it's very frustrating, I think, for both of you. So Tara also asked, would it be better to walk in a fenced area, even if it was smaller, to just get some of the flat out need to run out of their system? And honestly, you would have to test that with your dog. You would have to find out by testing it. Um, a couple of things that would make you more likely to be successful would be if it was a novel fenced area, so a place that they're not, they've not been. And then also, it does need to be big enough that they can have some freedom of movement. So like people will say, well, I've got, you know, an acre fence pasture. And I always go, it's nice that you've got that, but it's not going to (laughs) work. It's not, it's not big enough. Um, And you, you didn't really do much of that. Did you like, I don't think you had fenced areas. No, no, I, I, I did have, I didn't end up ever doing it because COVID happened. Um, I've got a friend with a farm that had a a smaller fenced area that I had thought about looking at. Um, uh, I mean, we did go to some, I did track down people who had some private property and uh, an access to some pastures and those are technically fenced, but they're fenced with barbed wire and he just goes under it. Um, So it's not quite the same. Um, But uh, 
yeah, yeah so it, that wasn't really part of your um your process and when it is part of people's process it again it's a it's it's a restriction like the long line is so it will take you longer it will it will not work as quickly and it does need to be big enough um and preferably novel for it to have any effect so tara's final question is an interesting one how did tonics need to run impact the other dog or i'm going to say dogs or was he taken out alone until he was calmer? And you did both. You did walk him by himself as well as with other dogs as part of his remedial socialization. So talk about the effect he may have had or not had on the other dogs or the effect that they had on him. Absolutely. So um, my other dog, uh, I mean, it's actually a very insightful question because I don't know that you and I even talked that much about it. Um, Nickleby would correct Tonic a lot. And uh, I even though I didn't pick up on tonic lacking some needs, um, Nickleby was, and, um, he, and, and it added some conflict in the house, um, that I didn't realize what it was. I thought it was Nick resource guarding or something like that and was kind of working on it from that standpoint. Um, so early on, I, when I was doing the, the walks early, I took tonic out solo because what would happen is Nick, would sometimes interfere with tonic coming back to me. Um, he'd get really amped up with tonics, like kind of bubbling over energy and he'd kind of chase at him and kind of almost boss him a little bit. And so I took Nick completely out of the picture. Nick got separate walks. Um, we did add in, I, so I've got a friend who's got a great selection. I've got a number of friends with great selections of dogs where you can just pick the personality that you want to work with. Um, yeah. And early on, when we would add those other dogs into the walk and I've even got video from January before we started walking where we took them off and he was just insane, just racing, racing, racing. And that's kind of what the other dogs did. Um, and her young dog loved it that he would run like that. Her other dogs didn't really care. Um, once, once we started making some progress and we could add them in, we added her older dogs in and, and they might jog with him a little bit. And then they were like, this is stupid. I don't want to run this much. And so he, they did help kind of bring him in. They would come in for cookie parties and tonic would be like, well, I don't want to miss out on that. And he'd come in too. Um, and then it's once we added those dogs in that I started adding, um, my Nickleby with tonic. I still, if I'm going out where I don't have anybody else with me and it's just me, I will either take Nickleby or tonic right now, just because I don't, I, I don't trust that Nickleby won't interfere with tonic coming back to me. Um, like when tonic does the racing back to me, uh, sometimes Nickleby intervenes. Um, and I, I, I just want a second set of hands before I deal with that. I think I've taken them out together once and it went just fine, but um, I'd prefer to have someone else with me. Yeah. And I think that um, I agree. Insightful question, an important question. And he was, I, I actually love that you just brought up that Nickleby had some behaviors towards him in the house that you had potentially misinterpreted. And I have seen this I have seen this a lot, especially again with border collies because they're so controlling. They will say, you know, you're unhinged. So I'm going to tell you you're unhinged about any chance I possibly get. Um, and when you help the unhinged dog <laughs> to be more, um, more in a better like homeostasis, everything calms down a little bit. 
Yeah, and I should add, I, I cannot remember the last time Nickleby corrected Tonic for something that wasn't actually an appropriate situation to correct him. Um, Nickleby is more relaxed because Tonic is getting all these extra walks. Um, yeah. And, and you can, it's it's a very, I mean, he's now getting multi, many more walks as well, but he, he that is very, very different that um, that he, he's just like, fine, you've taken care of it. I don't have to stress about this anymore. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating. And it, so I would tell everybody, if you're having kind of some multi-dog household concerns, think about that. Maybe think about the behavior of the dog that's being corrected. Because I think your first inclination is to think about the behavior of the dog that's doing the correcting. Um, and thinking about the behavior of the dog that's being corrected is actually important and interesting. And he's, Nickleby's not the first Border Collie that I've heard about. Um, basically acting like that basically being like could you chill out dude like <laughs> could you really calm down um so that's a really fascinating piece and then i also love the piece about using the behavior of the other dogs to your advantage sometimes because that's a big one for me that i do a lot i think it's so easy for me to integrate a new dog into my off-leash world because my other dogs have such good off-leash behaviors mm -hmm. um you cultivated that return for cookies and there was no you didn't call him you didn't tell him to come over for cookies you just said hey we're having cookies like you can come have some or not right and it really helped him right it, yeah that was definitely important um and and still even now he's he's pretty quick to come in if he thinks everybody else is getting cookies and he's not <laughs> For sure. Using a little bit of jealousy to your advantage is never, never actually a bad thing, in my opinion. So, Jen, is there anything else that you would like to add to the story? Um, I think the only thing was uh, we, we had talked a little bit about the recall versus the coming in at the end um, for the car. And mm -hmm. uh, because he did have a really good recall from even from when he was a puppy, like he loved to run in, like he'll come running two hills over to race into me until it's towards the end and that re and he's thinking that might be the end um and so i think that was that helped a little bit when i would go out because i i knew he would come into me um i knew he wasn't going to leave but that uh we I just i thought the recall to put him in the car was what i needed to do and you you got me stopped on that <laughs> yes i'm so glad that you brought that up jen because basically you guys we worked on so many things with tonic <laughs> that I, I, this is why I love having the interview piece because I left that out pretty much. And he did have a beautiful recall. The problem was the conflict with the car. And when you add conflict to your recall, you sometimes poison it across the board, but you didn't, it was not poisoned across the board. It was, he was very good at reading context. And so he knew, okay, calling me here means car, but calling me when we're a hill away from the car just means good stuff for dogs. And I think a lot of people would look at your getting into the car um, issue as a recall problem. And you're correct that it was not. Mm -hmm. and, and I was approaching it like a recall problem. And I, I, that was frustrating to me because I'm like, it's perfect until it's not. <laughs> and and yeah. identifying why that one that wasn't, wasn't, it was really important to me. Um, I, I think so. I'm glad you brought that up because again, like I said, a lot of people would look at that as a simple recall issue. Um, but I'm, can I just sing it from the rooftops that like nothing is ever simple? 
<laughs> like, if you've got a simple behavior issue, you probably solved it yesterday. <laughs> it is, you know, you were, if it really were a recall issue, Jen, you would have fixed it right away. Because you were trying to fix it that way. And you were you already trained a great recall. You already know how to do that. Um, and so you, once we understood that we needed to solve the, um, the conflict with the car piece, then the things really started to, to fall into place for you. Right. That part. Yeah. Well, Jen, I'm just going to say, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about tonic with me, but also thank you for your willingness this entire time to just trust me. <laughs> um, and you, you also, you just put in some really solid work. You, you videoed, you took notes. You're actually still using our page together to take notes on your training because that's just the trainer that you have become. Um, and I just want to say that I really appreciate your dedication. Clients like you make my job not stressful. And, you know, I saw he made me have to think hard a few times, but I like doing that. I like the puzzle. What I don't like doing is um, being stressed about, are we going to be able to get this done? Because is this person going to trust me enough to get it done? And I never had to ask that question. <laughs> well, you, I mean, early on when you said he would eventually trot and all the money did, um, you, you put a lot of money in the bank there that I'm like, okay, I'll do whatever you say now. <laughs> Usually yeah, it takes that kind of one big moment. Like we got to build that trust account for, for us as well. And um, yeah, that was a pretty big deposit in the account. And so thankfully tonic, <laughs> did that for me because everything's a hypothesis right. you know i think i think i'm right but i'm not always and um i was on that situation so that set us up i think for success so jen thanks so much for having this conversation with me absolutely thank you Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.